0: And I invite you to open your Bible to Psalm number 2. The second Psalm is where we are today. I'll extend a word of invitation once again to any freshman uh, in, in the room or outside of the room that wants to have lunch today. We'd love to hang out with you, get to know you a little bit, and introduce you to the ministry as the guy said earlier. So come on over to the Duncan House at 1.30. We'll be happy to have you uh, seven minutes away if you drive righteously. Um, so. But we'd love, we'd love to have you. So again, talk to one of the guys to get the address, and we'd love to see you this afternoon. So are you in Psalm 2? Let's begin by reading this excellent song. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the very word of the living God. It's called Travels into Several Remote Nations of the World in Four Parts by Lemuel Gulliver, first a surgeon and then a captain of several ships. It's a long title for the more well-known title, Gulliver's Travels. You know it, not as a classic of English Anglo-Irish writing and a classic of... of English satire. You know it as a 2010 movie starring Jack Black that was widely panned on Rotten Tomatoes. It got a 20% fresh, and uh, reviews like uh, from Peter Travers and the Rolling Stones said, a dumb excuse for a movie. Uh, Another reviewer, Anthony Quinn from the, the U.K., Uh, said, well, nobody would seriously expect Hollywood to honor Jonathan Swift's satirical fantasy. We might at least have hoped for a few decent gags. Uh, My favorite review is, there is laziness at every turn in the writing and the acting and the filmmaking. Don't reward these yahoos. Hmm. Well, I don't know how you feel about the movie, but that book was written by Jonathan Swift's and I think he would have actually appreciated those, those reviews because he said the purpose of writing it was to vex the world rather than divert it. He was trying to mess with your head. So maybe the movie did a better job after all when you read the reviews of it. I'll read you a paragraph from the, the original classic of English literature. It says this, his features, this is the emperor being described, of a people called the Lilliputians, the tiny... "'little people. "'His features are strong and masculine "'with an Austrian lip and arched nose, "'his complexion olive, his countenance erect, "'his body and limbs well proportioned, "'all his motions grateful, his deportment majestic. "'He was then past his prime being 28 years "'and three-quarters old, of which he had reigned "'about seven in great felicity and generally victorious. "'For the better convenience of beholding him, I lay on my side so that my face was parallel to his. And he stood but three yards off. However, I have had him since many times in my hand and therefore cannot be deceived in the description. His dress was very plain and simple, the fashion of it between the Asiatic and the European. He had on his head a light helmet of gold adorned with jewels, a plume on the crest. He held his sword drawn in his hand to defend himself. And if I should happen to break loose, it was almost three inches long. The hilt and scabbard were gold and rich with diamonds. His voice was shrill but very clear and articulate, and I could distinctly hear it when I stood up. The ladies and courtiers were almost magnificently clad, so that the spot they stood upon seemed to resemble a petticoat spread upon the ground, embroidered with figures of gold and silver. His imperial majesty spoke often to me, and I returned answers, but neither of us could understand a syllable. The emperor's horse as they alighted and came near his person, which I am now going to describe, he's taller by almost the breadth of my nail than any of his court, which is alone enough to strike an awe in the beholders. He's a fingernail's breadth, larger than his peer, and therefore he is revered. The contrast between this normal-sized person, Gulliver, who's transported into this weird world of the Lilliputians as they humorously attempt to tie him up and The king himself is just this much taller than the others. I mean, Gulliver could easily smash them all, and the adventures go on. But those Lilliputians, those tiny, tiny people, uh, remind me of Psalm chapter 2. It sounds very similar to me when we think about our rebellion against God. When we think about what it's like, what it's really like, when we compare ourselves to God, when we assert our independence from God, all the while oblivious to the power being so mercifully restrained, we look around at our fellow rebels and we're impressed with those that might be a centimeter bigger than the rest of us, but tiny, so tiny compared to God. Psalm 2 portrays this whole world in defiance against God. And it shows how foolish and silly that defiance really is if it wouldn't be so deadly serious. Last week we looked at Psalm 1, the gateway of the book of songs, the, the worship book that God's people have always held on to and loved because, the, as Calvin says, the anatomy of the human soul is within it. Every emotion, every experience every feeling that that you've had in your fields is contained and described in the psalms and so christians are so often drawn there to resonate and to find words for their prayers and to voice their praise and that psalm didn't let you mess around with uh, some kind of musical interlude instead it said before you open your mouth to sing you have to decide which path you're going to be on Are you going to go the way of the righteous with ends in prosperity and blessing and union with God, or are you going to go the way of the rebel and encounter frustration and demise and a useless existence like shaft blowing in the wind? Well, Psalm 2 is really a a continuation of Psalm 1. It has linking language and similar terminology, as you'll see but it ramps up the stakes that the outcome of your life, if you choose to live in rebellion against God instead of in harmony with God's way and God's wisdom, if you choose to go the route of the rebel, you are going to be crushed. If you're going to defy God's authority, if you're going to be rebellious and defiant against god if you're going to think yourself big and large and in charge if you want to do things your own way if you look at others and compare yourself to them and say i think i i think i can navigate this life pretty well on my own thank you very much god and others then psalm 2 is for you psalm 2 is an urgent call to humility It's a warning to any of us who would dare remain defiant. And it reminds us that that is our default position. None of us start on the narrow road. None of us start in the foundation that is solid. Instead, we have a a house, a foundation that's, that's built on sand at first. And that's our default position is one of Desiring our own autonomy and freedom and and rebellion and not going after God's way. And so, Psalm 2 serves as a reminder of the consequence of living this way, and it exposes it in almost satirical language of how ridiculous this is. To look at the poetic structure for just a second, you saw, I think, the different voices as I read it to you, verses 1 through 3, it's got... 24 lines 12 verses in English uh, couplets that you can break into three verses uh, really easily. Uh, 1 through 3 is just the voice of the king in opposition to those who would dare take a stand against him. And then verses 4 through 6 are Yahweh speaking in in this in light of this ridiculous opposition to God's gigantic rule over his tiny creation. And then Verses seven through nine are are the son of the king, the son of God speaking uh, his words, and then it ends with how it's all going to end. Verses ten through twelve is the kings of the earth submitting, and there is this this national and ethnic and peopled. Kind of look at this psalm, and though our tendency is to think about it individually, our own rebellion, our own sin against God, our own foolish our own foolish defiance against god, there, there is this reminder that this is a this is an international crisis that this whole world is is against God, this whole world thinks it 's big, this whole world wants its own way, this whole world is is needing this urgent call to humility. This, this world is under the power and sway of, of the evil one, and it remains in white-knuckled defiance against God. And it doesn't see the consequences of its war against God and against God's Son, but it plays out on an individual level just as Psalm 1 warned us that there's only two ways to live. And so the question is, who is in charge here? Are you defiant? Are you aware that there is a good God in control of this world and, and over rightfully over you? Psalm 2 supplies the answer to the pressing question, who's the ultimate power in this universe? Traditionally, this song is labeled a, a liturgical song or a royal song. It's a song with kingship all around it. It was probably used in ancient Israel for coronation day. Out on Mount Zion, the, the, the mount of, of God, the, the mountain where God's temple would be built, and the new Davidic king would be installed on the throne. And part of the celebration that would attend the ascension to the throne would be uh, maybe a, a reading of this psalm or a singing responsively of this song by the people as the, the king was installed on his throne. It would speak to God's people in times of transition. Uh, one king had died and his son was coming into power, a time that would normally in a nation's life be instable and difficult and questionable. But all of it is presented as a king that is higher than any other king, a king that subordinates every other ruler, And so let's look at it in four parts because it it reminds us that this whole world is on a mission to assassinate God. And if you are not a Christian today, if you haven't submitted your life to Jesus Christ, if you haven't trusted Him by faith, you are part of this vast conspiracy to try to take God down. And I know that sounds funny to you because maybe you're... You're a very kind and friendly and sweet non-Christian and you want good for your fellow man and you don't even believe there's a God, much less are trying to shoot anybody. But here's the thing, this psalm identifies who you really are at the core of yourself, who you really are in your disposition and your desires, your drive for freedom and autonomy And because our first parents rebelled against God, you have a mindset. Maybe you're only vaguely aware of it that you are in opposition to God, that you don't want what God wants. And so let's look at this attempted assassination of God and and His Son in four parts. First, verses 1-3, through the sovereign and the sovereign. The sovereign's and the sovereign, the sovereigns and the sovereign. Look at what verses 1 and 2 say. Why are the nations raging or in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising the the nations, the states? Why are they scheming a vain plot? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers or judges take counsel together. I think in I read verses one and two, and I don't I don't hear anxiety. I don't see God's hands ringing as He asks this question. It seems to be an expression of absolute astonishment, incredulity. How could these rebels be so foolish? And at the outset, their opposition to God is profoundly absurd. Why do the nations rage and the people plot or conspire? That's a little bit too too weak of a word. It's the same word from Psalm 1 verse 2. Remember, it's our mumbling word. You, you go and you ask for directions and they tell you, you know, which way to go because apparently you lost your phone and, and you repeat, turn left to get to Duncan's house and drive seven minutes fast down Sheldon and stuff and and turn right. And you, you have to memorize direction. You mutter them. You try to internalize them. Well, that's the Psalm 1 version of meditating uh, day and night on the law of the Lord. The Psalm 2 version of this meditating, of this murmuring, of this plotting is... The people in rebellion against God, they're plotting, they're conspiring, they're murmuring in a bad way, they're muttering uh, in vain without any semblance of sanity because the outcome of their plans and schemes, their plot in vain, their most violent plans of mutiny only result in their destruction. They dig in. They take their stand. They take their counsel. The verbs are interesting. Rage and plot. Take counsel or conspire together. It's this ludicrous attempt at rebellion and autonomy against the God who is king. Not to geek out, but that word, the nations are in uproar, that's in the perfect tense, reminding us that it's a a determined kind of a, a settled sort of uproar. This is the way it is. And then it switches to the imperfect tense the people's are devising imperfect that that means that it's a repeated thing they just keep on devising and scheming and plotting and then it it goes back to the to the perfect tense they take their stand this is how they always are they're always standing in opposition they're always dug their heels in against the king of kings and then it goes back to that Uh, to that imperfect tense, and the rulers take counsel together. They, They just keep trying to think of ways to win against God, to live their own way, to be in charge of this world. They're saying now is the time to make our move, to unite our powers, to overthrow God Himself. An opportunity for revolt. It's a portrayal of a king and all his fellow kings plotting against the king of kings. Nations, peoples, kings, rulers, reviewing their positions, plotting, calculating their odds. And there's obviously eschatological future kind of ramifications of this. You're thinking of a, a day in the future when the nations will wage war against Christ on earth. the book of Revelation. This is that kind of a moment. But This is also the way the world is. This is the way you and I are because we're rebels by nature and by choice because we're sinners. We want what we want, not what God wants. This is a depiction of of every one of us in our ludicrous attempt to define how this life should work. And this revolt against God is so futile It speaks of bonds and cords, words that you would use to tie up a dog or an ox, a domesticated animal, a yoke of subjection. That's what they think they're going to do to God. Verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We won't be tied down by God's old rules and ideas. Can you hear unbelievers talking like this? Can you hear your own testimony before you were saved with this kind of an attitude and posture? Did you have a a declaration of independence? Not the Nicolas Cage one, but the the declaration. A lot of movies coming out of me today. I'm sorry for that. Dishonor my father. Their declaration of independence is, you know, I want to do what I want to do. I mean, it was early in your life that you saw that in yourself, your own heart. You don't want to do what Mama says. You don't want to do what the teacher says. You like Pink Floyd. And, you know, the the language here is political power against Yahweh, overthrowing His authority. No one is going to tell these nations what to do. And against His Messiah, that's uh, verse 2. It says against Yahweh and against His anointed. That's the word Messiah. That's His chosen one, His anointed one and it's this depiction of resistance and rebellion and it's such a reminder that our world genuinely is not in kind of a fulcrum position where they could maybe you know go god's way or maybe they could you know get worser and worser no our world hates god it's not passive they're not apathetic about god the language here's language of rebellious intentional hatred especially in reference to god's authority god's law god's rules god's desires god's way god's wisdom they're against all of that and it's hard to even say they because i know this is about me this is how i came into this world bent against god hostile to god wanting to follow my lusts and my passions and my ways, not wanting anyone to reign over me free of all authority. And at the heart of it, this explains why this world is full of chaos and death and fighting and rebellion. It's why children defy their parents. It's why students say, teachers, leave those kids alone. It's why a wife will not follow her husband it's why somebody pops their collar and says man don't tell me what to do i don't think all pop collars are acts of rebellion just so you know. Isaiah 40 verse 22 says it's he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness this is the universal sin of autonomy this is why those guys in genesis 11 built a tower to the heavens it's a weird chapter right if you made it through your beginning of the year Bible reading and hit chapter 11 in the face. And you, you read the Tower of Babel story, and, and you're like, I don't understand why this construction project is so problematic, right? Like, they're building a tower to the heavens, and God seems to be extremely irritated about tower building. And I think what helps you understand that scene is knowing how irrational sin is. I mean, the mass of humanity in the same kind of language of Psalm 2 assembles together with the express purpose of usurping God. And so he goes, bloop. And next thing you know, it's Duolingo and Rosetta Stone and Spanish 101. And you're done. You can't get it together anymore. No matter how much Google Translate you walk around with. Where is the bathroom? There you go. <laughs> it's really good. You know how you say it in Italian? No. Dove de bagna. <laughs> so and when I was in, in Rome, just, to, just not too many. It's kind of a flex. When I was in Rome just a minute ago, I tried to use Spanish because, you know, Romance languages and it didn't work. The sin of autonomy, the sin of of the Tower of Babel, the irrationality of sin. Every headline you see, whether it's nations at war against nations or domestic violence in a home, people are plotting because the very thing the human race is doing is what they will do prior to Jesus' second coming. They will assemble themselves against God. And that's who we are. We're little tiny Lilliputian sovereigns thinking we can go up against the sovereign in our attempts at doing things our own way. Spurgeon says, To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to the saved sinner, it's easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? How's your neck? How's your neck? under the yoke of God's ways and rules and judgment. Look, the Christian life isn't about rules and judgments and regulations. It's freedom in Christ, but it's freedom that looks like submission and obedience to our Lord, following Him out of joy. And that's why I think Spurgeon's line, the graceless neck to the graceless neck the yoke of Christ is intolerable to the saved sinner it's easy and light and so how's your neck when you're up against god's standards for whatever it is sexuality finances friendship your parents whatever it is you're you're bucking against how's your neck Are you happy to have God's rulership over you or are you kicking, kicking hard? That's part one, the sovereigns and the sovereign and their attempt at autonomy. I'm very interested to show you God's response in verses 4 to 6. Is God nervous, upset, scared? God is indeed shaking. The depiction of God in verses 2 And verses, I'm sorry, four through six is God quaking and shaking, but God's not afraid of these tiny rebels. He's actually laughing at them. Verse four, he who sits, the implication of that word is the context, he sits enthroned. He who sits on his throne in the heavens laughs. Ultimately, God's response to rebellion, or maybe not ultimately, but primarily, God's initial response to rebellion is that he finds it futile, misguided, but ultimately laughable. It's laughable. Just like those little Lilliputians trying to take Gulliver out with their little toothpick swords. How could we possibly rebel against the sovereign God who spoke the universe and all of us into existence? Who can cause you to cease to exist in a moment by just shutting your heart off? He does it all the time. You blame cheeseburgers? God does it. But here God is laughing at this rebellion. There's a theology of laughter in the Bible. I could walk you through it. Proverbs 17.22, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. It's good to laugh. Psalm 2. Uh, their mouth was filled with laughter. Our tongue was shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Laughter could be an expression of joy, of jubilation. Uh, it could be healing and powerfully uplifting. Uh, Sarah laughs in Genesis 21 when she says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She cannot get over the fact that she is a pregnant elderly grandma lady. Job 8.21 a hope in the mouth of the book of Job. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. His friend tries to console him, saying, someday you'll get your chuckles back, Job. Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Laughing, la- laughing, laughing is good. Psalm twenty-two, <laughs> Psalm 2.4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, our text says. It's a different kind of laugh though than the laughter of the rejoicing psalmist and the laughter of of Sarah and the laughter of Proverbs 15, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but the heart of sorrow, the Spirit, is crushed. It's a different kind of laughter. Whenever God is depicted as laughing in the Scripture, it's most often this kind of Psalm 2 laugh. A laugh of derision a laugh of ridicule, a laugh of contempt, a laugh of scorn. Psalm 59.8, But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have the nations in derision. Psalm 37.13, The Lord laughs at him, for he sees the day, that his day, the day of the wicked, is coming. Job 41.29, Darts are regarded as straw. He laughs at the threat of javelins. God's response to human rebellion is confidence in his sovereignty. And he scorns. And the divine derision depicted in verses four through six is he who sits in the heavens laughs. And it's not a laugh of pleasure, it's not a knock knock joke chuckle. The Lord holds them in derision, a sardonic kind of laugh those who manage to just be a fingernail taller than their peers and think they can puff their chest out and defy God's authority, the one seated in heaven, God, the only true king who knows that His kingdom is the only unshakable one, is shaking in laughter. A confident laughter of absolute sovereignty. I mean, if you're thinking of nations in rebellion against God, how will it look someday? Will it involve mass weapons of war? Huge armies assembled with global powers and technology? God's not scared of that. He gives it a... <laughs> I mean, if I were to beat a professional athlete at a, at a game of, I don't know, pig, say, I don't know, how would I respond? Ha! <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't happen. Maybe it happened once. When my kids were little, they're not that little anymore. Speaking of basketball, Owen can can take me because he's faster. But I'm two foot taller. But sometimes I'd come home and the kids would pile on me when they were little. And I would get down on all fours and they'd like try to wrestle me. and I was never in danger. From... (laughs) baby Adeline and Ella and Owen and Ollie Joe. I was never in a a place of of real threat. But they'd jump on me and tackle me and wrestle me, and and I would laugh because they didn't have a chance against Dad. (laughs) But this isn't a father laughing at children playfully. It's a scornful laugh. It's a confident laugh in His own sovereignty. The assertions that we have against God, assertions of the freedom of our will, assertions of the the vastness of our knowledge. How could you believe in God when, you know, science? I was down by USC fight on yesterday picking up some Chick-fil-A. We were stuck in traffic. It's no need to get into the details Yet I got into the details. And the Chick-fil-A in the village there, campus at SC, is right across from the science area. I mean, this is some big science at SC. You know the science area? It's got the old plane they got up on sticks, you know? They got some, like, NASA junk laying there. You know, it's science. It is the achievement. What is it called? California Science Center? But it's part of USC's deal. Oh, for sure it is. It's got USC signs all over it. Don't make me know more about USC than you. So there's all this science center right there, right? And and SC has all their, their learnings of science. And I'm just looking at it going, look at that. There's a plane on a stick. How vast is the wisdom of man? A plane on a stick. It's as impressive as a corndog to God. It's just all of, of human wisdom, you know, piled together. It's just not that impressive. But laughter is just where it starts. God laughs because there's no threat to his sovereignty. This disdainful mockery, it's so ludicrous that that creatures would rebel against their creator. Sadly comical, but it doesn't stay laughing. He who sits enthroned in the heavens last, the Lord scoffs at them. Verse 5, then He'll speak to them in His anger and terrify them with His furious authority. Why? Well, His laughter turns to anger. He speaks to them in His wrath. The settled, determined anger In all its perfection, because it's God's anger, terrifies them with his authority because of a declaration he makes in verse 6. The declaration of an event. Verse 6 As for me, I have set my king, this is Yahweh speaking, as for me, I have installed or set my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It is I the Hebrews are emphatic who have set my king on my hill. This enthronement happens on his mountain. It's his king. He has installed him. And the reason he's confident and his enemies ought to be in dread, the reason for his supreme confidence and not a hint of anxiety or nervousness in God, a wonderful security in his absolute sovereignty is because it's his hill. It's his son. It's his plan. It's his kingship. His enthronement his installation, and there's no chance that you'll even get a chip in his windshield. There's such a wonderful security that God has in God's sovereignty. There's this great stabilizing wisdom in God's immovable rule and reign. Growing up in a church that didn't teach the absolute sovereignty of Christ, but instead more kind of a balance of human freedom and God's sovereignty, and even a lot more kind of giving cred to the devil. You know, Batman and the Joker, Superman and the bald guy with the green stuff that can stop Superman. Lex, we got it. It was like a dualism kind of, at least that's how it it shook down to me. I told somebody this the other night. It was, it, was, it was a moment in my theological, like a turning point in my theological development when I was listening to a, a MacArthur tape called Deliver Unto Satan Part 2. What a, what a compelling title. Delivered Unto Satan Part 2. And in it, he went through this like, Bible survey of how God is in control of everything the devil does. Book of Job, Peter... Example after example. And I remember feeling overwhelmed by the sovereignty of God. To know, as Luther said, that the devil is God's devil. And if that's the case with a supernatural being in the realm of God's unearthly creation, how much more is that the case with people made of dirt? And yet we kick against the fallen Instinct, We kick against the mandates and rules and boundaries that God puts on us. But when we become children of God, we should, like God, find comfort and peace in sovereignty. Edwards calls it sweet sovereignty. And once you see it, you see it all over the pages of the Bible. And you see it really clearly in verse 6. The opposition to it is, yet. The certainty of it is, yet I have set. The power that maintains it, I have set it. The place, My holy hill of Zion, and the blessings that flow from it follow. That's the scorn of the sovereign. He laughs, and that laughter will turn to wrath, and that wrath is based in the declaration of an event that reflects the absolute unquestioned sovereignty of God. Thirdly, verses 7-9, through we meet the Son of the Sovereign. The Son of the Sovereign. Look at what verse 7 says. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, Thou art my Son, today I have begotten Thee. There's a guaranteed assurance of victory here. Merciful warning to all those who seek to live in defiance, and it serves as an urgent summons to humility. His divine decree, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, Thou art my Son. Today I have begotten Thee. From heaven to Mount Zion to the very day of the king's enthronement, Yahweh himself speaks. It says, Yahweh said to me, it's the voice of God's son, of the anointed one, of God's king, of the Messiah. And three features of his, his, his rule, the rule of the Messiah are given here. He says, you are my son. That means the rule is legitimate. This isn't a usurper. This isn't some kind of rebel taking over the throne. This is This is the succession plan. Guess who takes over for God? Well, God does. Who's going to sit on God's throne? Well, well, God's Son is. You are my son. I have begotten you. Not a usurper. Yahweh himself has appointed him. I've begotten you. I've installed you, verse 6. It's Yahweh's doing. I've put him in the rightful place. And so the Messiah's reign is legitimate. Second, the Messiah's reign is exhaustive. It says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance to the ends of the earth. There's not an inch of territory that's outside of the all encompassing rule of God's sovereign appointed king. The rule is exhaustive, it's universal, it's comprehensive, so it's legitimate. He's God's son. It's exhaustive. The nations are your inheritance. None are going to escape the rule of Christ. And then finally, it's forceful. It says, I will break with a rod of iron, verse 9. Shatter them like earthenware, like pottery. This is guaranteed victory. God will pulverize all His enemies and the Messiah forcibly enforces His reign that is legitimate and exhaustive and forceful on a rebellious people. This is a Christian worldview. Three times the book of Revelation quotes verse 9 of Psalm 2. Once talking about the victorious Christian, Revelation 2.27, and twice concerning the Lord and His iron-like rule as He breaks Pottery. You couldn't pick anything easier to smash. The appointed king in verse 7 will establish his kingdom in verse 8. Is it certain? It's called the decree of Yahweh. You know, we know where history is headed. At the end of the day, this is how we get through. The ultimate power of the universe is God Himself and His Messiah to whom He promises the world. And if, God forbid, you were God and you would write the final act, how would you end this song? If you finally figured out the God of justice, well what you figure out is he's beyond figuring, because he's been presented in this unquestioned sovereign rule, derisive anger turned to wrath, turned to fury, turned to certain judgment, against all possible rebels in all the world, of all the nations. How will this? Frightening, sovereign, powerful, wrathful God conclude this song. Well, in a classic, unguessable way. Verses ten through twelve. Salvation in this Son. And this is a record scratch in this song. They didn't totally have those then, but that's 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 what's here. Urch kind of a thing. Because here you have. An urgent summons to humility. A summons from God Himself to the rebels who are warring against Him. And He pleads with them in verse 10 and says, Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. O kings, be wise, be warned, take heed, consider the implications You've seen the futility of defying his authority. And so he invites them, or maybe stronger, summons them to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. A strange combination, rejoice with trembling. You see, if all of us, by default, are in rebellion against God, are warring against God, God invites you to a treaty? Armistice? A a reconsideration of your position? Like there you are, you and all of sinful mankind, and God is offering you peace. He's saying, or, everything behind, it's smashed pottery, it's the derisive laughter of God, it's wrath. Or, or, You could serve Me, God says. With fear, rejoice with trembling. Joy requires fear when it comes to God. Because we're talking about the ultimate power in the universe here. It would be presumption to have joy without fear. And the fact that God is inviting rebels To lay down their arms and serve Him is such an ultimate breakthrough of grace. He warns them. He asks you, would you just calculate? Would you discern? Would you be warned? And you're summoned to worship Yahweh with reverence, rejoice with trembling, and to bow down to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the sun. Do homage to the sun, or kiss the sun in your translation. It was a sign of surrender, a defeated king brought before the ruling and reigning king who defeated his armies. And he would show submission by kissing the king's feet or his ring or whatever. Here, the psalm tells us rebel sinners to kiss the Son. Why? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When you kiss the Son, when you submit to God's Son, when you give up your weapons of war, you, number one, avoid wrath. Wrath that flares up in a moment. You never know when you're going to die and face the fierce judgment of God. And number two, to experience joy. That final line, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. It's the reality of both. Not one or the other. The Gospel requires both. Rescue from well-deserved wrath and punishment and joy as you're accepted, not as an enemy, but as a friend and a family member, as a child of God. Serve Yahweh. Surrender to Yahweh. What's it mean to serve and surrender? Well, just as in that ancient subjugation of a conquered king kissing the feet of the sovereign one, the Gospel has the same kind of call. The Gospel says, get rid of your futile attempt for rebellion, your quest for autonomy, and bow in submission to Christ as Lord. Surrender to God's King. Or, you'll surrender to Him because of His wrath. Friend, you're not a Christian unless you've submitted to Christ. Unless you, by faith, have turned from your sin, have given up on your rebellion. That's what real faith is. And when you express faith in Jesus... Your testimony will sound like this. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. To go from an opponent of God who will be crushed by God's power to be behind the walls of God's city, embraced as God's Son, in submission to God, blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. It's an unbelievable summons of mercy that God declares to all swaggering sovereigns who are in reality not kings at all. God's Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God makes His promise to King David that He would always have a son on the throne, the ark of that promise was pointing at Jesus. He would be the line of prosperity. Not Solomon or one of the Davidic kings, but this Judean king who would come and fulfill all of God's good words a child is born, a son is given, the increase of His throne to no end, a King whose justice and righteousness would be forevermore, a King who would give His life as an act and proof of an offer of mercy, but who raised from the dead to remind you that you too will face judgment. And if you're covered by the sun, you'll be rescued, but if you're in opposition to the Son, you'll be damned. The apostles used to use Psalm 2 as one of their favorite texts to preach. I take that from Acts 13. Apostle Paul's preaching and he quotes Acts 2. You are my son today, I have begotten you. As he calls people to repent of their sins and believe on Christ. You see, Jesus' authority is still defied today. And the nations will continue in defiance against God. But God is calling a remnant of people once rebels to be friends. So are you defiant today? Do you think you're big? Do you want to do things your own way? Do you compare yourself to others? Psalm 2 has warned you, you need to be humble because if you remain defiant, even for a while, it will not be without consequence. Or you can submit to God's Son and you'll receive the promise of refuge and eternal blessing. Let me simplify it for you. Everything turns. Everything turns on your submission to God's King. God's Son. Jesus Christ, the ultimate power in the universe. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Father, help us to be wise. To be instructed. To have sense in our heads about how things really are. To know our warfare cannot and will not succeed, and that we need to cease and desist in our rebellion against you. God, we may, may we not refuse your yoke, but see that on the neck of grace it's freedom and joy and trembling. God, how wise you are, how infinitely wise. It is to obey Jesus. And how dreadful it is to be in opposition to You. So thank You for the Gospel of grace on display with wrath and mercy. On display on the cross of Christ where You poured out Your wrath on Your Son instead of on us so that rebels could be welcome as friends. Help this truth to sink down into those who do not know You savingly that they might repent and believe even today.